Welcome to the Orion Podcast with Jessa and Laurel. In this episode, we are excited because we connected with Elizabeth Suda of Article 22. It's an ethical jewelry line that transforms shrapnel from the Vietnam War in Laos into gorgeous artisan-crafted statements of good in the world. It's not just beautiful decoration, it's healing by design. Elizabeth's work has been featured in Vogue, The Wall Street Journal, The Ellen Show, Fast Company, and Time Magazine, to name a few of many. Enjoy this adventure into the business of Article 22. Transform business, change the world. That's the Tory Project's mission. If you're concerned about environmental degradation, social injustice, or the shredding of our democracy, check out Tory Project. This exciting new organization teaches entrepreneurs how to build highly profitable businesses that also act as a force for good in the world. Follow Tory Project on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Check out David J. Farron on LinkedIn to watch his videos designed for first-time founders and entrepreneurs. Sign up to join their next bootcamp or volunteer to help out at www.toryproject.org. Hey, Laurel. Hi, Jessa. Who's our guest today? We have Elizabeth Suda of Article 22. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. (laughs) And, um... We were connected to you because of your brand, Article 22. I believe it popped up on an Instagram ad for me. And I went to your website and every component part of it lit me up. And I bought the jewelry. And then I I got even further down the rabbit hole of the story around Article 22 by listening to Claire Press's podcast, uh, wardrobe crisis and your episode where she featured you was uh, upcycling purpose and peace in post-conflict Laos. And I wanted to bring that up because I recommend that our listeners go to that episode uh, from, from wardrobecrisis.com forward slash podcast and go to that article 22 episode because Claire press did an amazing journalistic journey and was actually there with you in Laos and the sound bites and I, that experience and that journey, I felt like I was there. We are clearly not in Laos today. <laughs> so I thought it might sound like it. <laughs> We're dealing with some AV issues. <laughs> yeah. And, and so please um, enjoy the journey of Claire Press's uh, podcast. I, she is also very interesting to us at Estellar Co. because of her sustainability influence. She was the first um, sustainability editor for Vogue, which was like a pioneering role in international media. And so that gives you some context for what, for how she set up this the podcast episode. We are not sustainability editors for Vogue. We're coming at it with a little different angle. And with that said... Um, so I'm a fan. I'm a customer. Uh, Justin, I just bought earrings the other day. Like it, it, we will continue on your very purposeful business. Let's start at the beginning of you as an entrepreneur. We know that your first introduction to Laos and uh, the handmade manufacturing process, if you will, in that country was through your experience with Coach. And tell us about when you got to Laos. What was that inspirational moment where you realized this product that they're producing in Laos is tied to the story and I want to be a part of it? And tell us what that, what that story is, please. 
Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And I really appreciate the shout out to Claire. She was a total adventurer and almost at the drop of the hat joined us in Laos. And, and it was truly an amazing, amazing 72 hours almost. Um, yeah, it was, it was a great, great piece. And one of the things I love about it so much is that it, it, it features all the different partners we work with in their own words. So it's really worth a listen. Um, so my entrepreneurial journey did start in Laos, but it didn't go there necessarily with that intention. I was really interested in just generally what traditional communities of artisans in particular could teach us about what sustainability meant. And I was really curious to know how that could translate into the global fashion market. And my, my first interest actually at the time was sustainable textiles. So what does that even mean? Well, really natural dyes. Um, and, you know, they were using uh, bug poop and resin called sticklac from a tree that is excreted by an insect, um, leaves and mud and seeds to make the most gorgeous, vibrant colors. And so when I got there, I realized that I was going to learn so much more than I ever could have anticipated. And I just became really curious about different crafts in the region and was led to a village uh, where they were making spoons. And I had eaten my breakfast that morning in this northern province. Uh, it was noodle soup, which is the local custom. And I ate it off of this spoon and it was really light. And I was like, oh, that's pretty interesting. And I get to this village where I'm actually on a textile assignment with a nonprofit called Helvetas. They're Swiss and they had just brought electricity to these four different villages. And they were like, okay, this is going to be in 10 years, a world heritage site. This province is going to attract these villages now have electricity. Is there something they can make with their textiles that could service a local tourist market? So this nonprofit was really forward thinking. By the way, it took longer than 10 years for the province to have its status deemed as UNESCO World Heritage, but it did eventually happen. So I'm there looking at the textiles and I say, what else do you make? And they lead me over to a kiln where there's this beautiful earthen mound and a burning, roaring fire inside of it. And this artisan is pouring this molten metal into a mold and out of it comes a spoon. And it was the same sort of spoon that I had eaten off of that morning. And then they led me to a, a shed where there was a bunch of shrapnel I discovered one of the pieces actually said rocket mortar in English on it. And that was the very first one that they picked up to show me because they couldn't read it, but they knew I could. And I put two and two together and, you know, I had known a little bit about the Vietnam war in Laos, but I had no idea that Laos was a proper theater of conflict that was actually referred to as the secret war. And 270 million bombs were dropped, 80 million failed to detonate. 
And I thought, what a shitty education I got because I had no idea about this. And yeah, ditto. you're teaching me about this. (laughs) Because it, it, it wasn't written in our history books, but I felt responsible for not knowing it. And it was one of those moments that everything kind of clicks into place. And I thought, if I don't know about this, then I think a lot of other people probably don't. And I just thought we need to make a bracelet and, and quite literally buy back the bombs that they can make spoons. They, they can make bracelets and, you know, 80 million unexploded bombs are still in the ground in Laos today. And a hundred percent of the people who have accidents with those unexploded bombs are civilians and 40% of them are children. And that's, that's really a mind blowing reality. You know, in the days where we used to commute and leave our houses, that would be the equivalent of walking through a contaminated farm, right? Where they, where they, where they farm their field, knowing that it's, it's a dangerous thing to do. So a walk to the subway would be a dangerous thing to do. And so I just thought, you know, let's, let's use design as a tool to raise not only awareness, but also funds to help clear some of the unexploded ordinance. And at the same time, take this brilliant local innovation, making spoons global through a bracelet, which is something that everybody can wear. And so that was, that was the beginning. I became an entrepreneur definitely by accident. (laughs) I love that story. When you became an entrepreneur by passion, you saw it, you put your hands on it. You heard the story, read it with your eyes. Like you had a full holistic experience and were awakened, awoken. Wow. I got to sort that out. But you woke up to to what you didn't know and you were, you were intrigued and interested. And I want to give our audience a little more context. Um, 80 million undetonated bombs walking to the subway is dangerous. Remind us how many bombs that was a minute that were dropped. Yes. So or every in 1964 and 1973, it was one plane load, like the equivalent, like of a B-52 plane so it's a large plane um every day 24 hours every eight minutes for nine years so there was persistent bombing over targets that were largely undetermined and it's recognized that you know, the bombs were sometimes over targets and sometimes they were deployed simply because a mission could not be performed um, in Vietnam or along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And they essentially used Laos as a dumping ground. Now, of course, the whole context for why Laos was involved in the first place, you know, there's its own complicated story where Laos itself was divided and in a civil war. And so there were factions within Laos that were happy to have the U S support in staving off communist leadership. 
And then, of course, the other side were the Pathet Lao, um, who were supported by, for example, the North Vietnamese, and they they wanted to kind of self-determine. And so um, the U.S. was able to basically work with the communities of people, including very notably the Hmong ethnic minority, um, who were very involved in themselves uh, flying and um, coordinating as well for the U.S. on the ground. And the U.S. was largely there, um, well, secretly entirely, but in the form of the CIA. And that, um, to add on to that, the U.S. did not recognize that it was involved until President Obama, um, his administration, came and made that announcement. And, and I remember a fun fact, you told me that you were at Kensington Palace when the royal family decided that they were going to follow in the footsteps of, of Princess Diana and, and go try to relieve the country of the destruction that's there. And some of the, the words that would pop up to me as an environmental professional is not just the war and the devastation, but it, this is continuing on throughout a constant environmental justice issue, a public health issue. You mentioned the farms. These people can't, their own one of the only methods of income they have for economic development is farming these lands. And so they must to provide for their family, put their self in harm's way. Well, there are many opportunities for us to get involved. And my experience was through article 22 and purchasing one of the bracelets and learning about that story, it just made me want to do more. And so I want to say thank you for Article 22 being established and being my educator and getting me involved in this because I just, for whatever reason, it hadn't stuck until now. So please tell us um, the first release, the peace bomb story, bomb to bracelet, transforming negative to positive, and how you launched that and and it's my understanding it grew pretty quickly. That's really exciting. Yes, yes, thank you. I mean, you, you got it exactly. You know, first having um, certain people in the public spotlight talk about these issues really does make a difference. And, you know, for me, it was really inspiring to have somebody like Princess Diana in mind, who obviously had an enormous platform, but who took this issue, uh, which had previously been viewed as like a political and military issue, this issue of landmines, and made it a humanitarian issue, which is truly what it is when you really think about the number of civilians that are actually the ones who are who are injured, whether it's landmines or in the case of Laos, cluster munitions. So when we were at Kensington Palace in um, 2016, I think it was, Prince Harry said, I'm going to walk more or less in my mother's footsteps and I'm going to take on the issue of landmine free 2025. Now, when I started this back in, I mean, it it really did start as a passion project. I had no idea where it was going to go and if it could be a viable business. I didn't know how people would react to it. And then, you know, within our first few months of selling, we were shipping to customers in over 20 countries. And what was so incredibly surprising was to first realize the power of the internet and how things could spread and how information could be shared, Um, even for somebody who had zero platform as compared to Princess Diana, who had the world's eye. Um, So that was really exciting. But the other thing that was perhaps 
surprising in a good way was the fact that people saw the story in a very personal way. So the foundation of, of what we set out to do was very simple. I mean, the bracelet is made by a community of people who are the most affected by the problem. And they took this detritus from the war and other scrap metal, and they made it into something that was useful for their local market to literally feed their local community. And so we were able to take that to the next level by making a bracelet that would bring them even more income, give them a much larger audience, and at the same time, an increase in sales that would allow us to actually donate to Mines Advisory Group, which is our main partner in Laos that actually is doing the land clearance. And just a note, they're amazing. They they employ many women um, and they are, you know, they're clearing unexploded ordnance every single day. And Article 22 uh, now actually co-sponsors a brand new emergency roving team in a southern province that was very heavily bombed because it's along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And this province, due to lack of funding and various other reasons, um, never had this emergency response team. So now villagers almost have a best friend on speed dial. There are bombs coming up every single day, but unless you have a team like this, the mag, other mag teams have to go and perform their planned duties. Whereas the roving team is able to go excavate an unexploded bomb that might only be, you know, 10 meters away from a family's house. So, you know, the idea is the people who are most affected by the problem, the artisans with all of this material are creating now jewelry that reaches the global market, which then helps clear more bombs through mags work. And then that creates more of a metal source to create more jewelry. And it's this beautiful, virtuous circle. So yeah, I mean, it's grown and it's definitely a matter of blood, sweat, and tears. I think no business is easy. And I can guarantee you, you make a whole lot more money selling arms than you do selling bracelets made from arms. But what has been amazing is that people see a story of transformation in the jewelry. And that transformation story is so specific and yet it's so universal at the same time. And it's one of the reasons why it became very natural for us to begin to collaborate with different activists and artists and people in fashion. We work with a woman named Angela Linball who was talking about sustainability and the environment in the late nineties, early two thousands. And, you know, that at that time, including when I started around 2010 to 13, fashion and sustainability were like oil and water. Anybody who thought of those two words together thought about a burlap sack. You know, there was, there was no mixing of these topics. Um, and, and so we started collaborating with her on a bracelet, um, that has engraved, I am love, I am light, I am peace, which is such an amazing example of how really people were looking at the jewelry in such a personal way. If a community that's so negatively affected can take it and make it a positive, then, you know, I can do that in my life too. And of course, have, easy, but. I have an anecdote with that exact bracelet. That was the first bracelet that I bought. 
I am love, I am light, I am peace. And I wore it and I loved it and I got compliments and I shared the Article 22 story to anybody that would listen. And about a year later, I ended up giving it to my sister as a Christmas gift. And that was coming full circle in this virtuous circle of us healing our relationship where I felt like I wanted to give her a piece of my healing and it healed our relationship. And now she carries me around with her and this story. And so I just envision this jewelry. Not It's not just a bracelet. It's the story of its creation. It's the story that it's taught me. And it's the story that I've added with my family and our healing and recreating our circle together. I hope that that will continue on. I hope when we buy Article 22 jewelry, wear it, wear it, wear it, wear it. And then we pass it on with this energy. But that that is amazing for me to hear because not to discredit it. It's the exact opposite. I hear so many similar that, and it would be easy to feel like this could be really trite, you know, but because it's literally a piece of history that has this whole foundation behind it, you know, you realize that it also has a future and that that's just a larger metaphor for all of us to remember, I think, on a day-to-day basis, which is that, you know, time time is continuous. And as much as history books may say that the Vietnam War ended in 1975, the reality is for people in Laos and parts of Cambodia and Vietnam who still are dealing with unexploded ordnance, it's still present. It's still happening. It's a different form of the war, but it's still alive. And so when you look at that on a personal basis, it's kind of a reminder that your past is always going to be relevant. You can't forget it, but the best you can do is kind of reshape it into this new, this new future. And that's, that's, I think what what I had no idea about going, going into this. And it certainly, you know, taught me lessons, uh, plenty of lessons in, in the process as well. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, as you're talking about all of this is just so the juxtaposition of, you know, the materials coming from a bomb that was intended to destroy and kill and the optimism, I guess, or like, life-giving and finding a purpose for these materials, like you said, for spoon and the spoon is for feeding. It's just so like sitting with that is just so impactful. And, and like you said, it's, you could make a lot, like an insane amount of money in arms compared to jewelry. And it's, you know, but what's serving humanity and what's serving us? It's, I mean, quite literally a spoon. And I, I was just thinking about that and, and having, you know, and you said, well, that I was an entrepreneur and entrepreneurs solve problems. And so you saw a problem, you saw a way to fix it. And frankly, using what I would consider all of us, like our white privilege being born in America with access to resources, use that to your advantage to solve this problem mm-hmm. through jewelry and through storytelling. And kind of coming back around to Laurel's point is the first time I heard of Article 22, Laurel and I are just, it's probably two years ago. And I was just like, we were in a car and something about our jewelry. She's like, this was made from a bomb. Oh, sorry guys, I'm terrible sound right now. But she's like, this was made from a bomb. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> and it's really, it's attention grabbing and it's not hyperbolic. It is literally true. And it's such a 
great vehicle for storytelling and about the the secret war. And I think that, you know, there, there's like two sides of this I see where there's one, the entrepreneurial side where you go in, you see a problem, you're like, this isn't right. How can I fix it? And you find a way to fix it. And then there's the other side where you might not be that person, which is totally okay. And you want to support it. And so finding meaning through your consumerism and where you're spending your dollars and buying something with impact that has a story to tell. So when you put on that bracelet and you're out and someone notices these markings, like, oh, what's that bracelet? I've never seen that before. Rick, well, it was made from a bomb. And then you sh- I would think most people would say, tell me more. <laughs> it, 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 exactly. And, and the reality is, you know, our community of customers are really our best advocates because it does spread by word of mouth. No, truly. And, and, and I'm so grateful for that. It's unlikely that you're going to talk about some generic thing that you got on Amazon that was imported from who knows where. Um, but this is a whole new level. And, and I like how you pointed out that, you know, some people are the type of people to go and do something very tangibly about an issue. But number one, there are so many problems in the world. There's no way we can all do something about everything. So I, as an entrepreneur by accident, found this situation that I felt like I couldn't walk away from. And I I happened to be young enough to be stupid enough at the time to take the risk and and say, okay, I'm just going to try and do it. Um, But you know, I can't do that about everything. So for me, a lot of decisions I make when I buy things are in looking for other businesses that are similar spirits um, that have a genuine desire to make a difference. This is totally different example, but there's this company called Stasher, and I swear this is a free free advertisement, but they they make these silicone Ziploc pouches. They are reusable for almost ever. I hope I just got my order and it feels good to know that I'm not going to be chugging, you know, thousands of Ziploc plastic bags into the, into the, the environment. And I, I, yeah, I just, I think that business does have such an opportunity to do what it does, which is make impact and profit while at the same time making an enormous difference. And, you know, that is not to say that it doesn't require other stakeholders. I mean, it absolutely does. It requires all the stakeholders in one way or another. It's a concerted effort to make whatever change you want to make. Um, You need customer awareness and you need that consciousness, which I think is hopefully accelerated to some extent by COVID. But I also recognize that, you know, not everyone can afford stasher bags in one go, or, you know, not everyone can afford our bracelets. Um, But, you know, we did think of that too. And one thing that was very important for me in building this business was to think about like price tiering. So we have a first item that's $22 and then we go all the way up to 2200 and that's something with other precious materials mixed in. We don't sell nearly as many of those things as we do, you know, the middle of the road range. 
But the idea was that we wanted everyone to feel like no matter where they were in their life, they could they could participate. A student could could buy that $22 resolution wrap, which is kind of like a string that wraps around your finger to remind you, okay, what did I want to, what did I want to do? What did I want to change? Um, it has a little piece of the bead. And then, you know, our starting bracelet is at $40. And that one was our very first bracelet that says on it engraved, dropped and made in Laos. And it's really carrying the, the story very directly. Um, and so the whole idea in price tiering was that we we would be able to make this accessible to as many people as possible. And at the same time, we could, from an impact perspective, like guarantee the artisans certain pieces of very high volumes um, so that there would be always a very consistent amount of income that would be coming in through those high volumes. And then at the same time, we could innovate as their techniques got more kind of fine um, with more difficult pieces. And maybe those would be more seasonal. Um, they would they would be maybe more expensive because of how they were finished and the, the quality of the polishing and all of that. Um, and so then that would allow them to earn more money per piece. And at the same time, they'd be capacity building upon their skills. So I was really thoughtful about making sure that it was participatory for consumers, but then also that there was this inherent sustainability in the the supply chain for ordering with the artisans. You hit the ding, ding, ding word stakeholders earlier, and your story is exactly what stakeholder capitalism is about, that Jessa and I promulgate is you were thoughtful and strategic about every part of your supply chain, not just your customers and what they want to buy and not just you and how much your business needs to make money, but how are the artisans quality of life being improved by your business being there? Yeah. And your thoughtfulness around the pricing strategy so that it's not only accessible to customers, but potentially elevate the artisans to another level, whether it's honing the craft or, um, you know, returning more income to their families. That is a, a shining example of a business that does well by doing good, that takes care of its stakeholders and is successful. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. And and that was really just sort of obvious from the beginning. I have to say, we didn't have to figure that out. And I recognize that being a new business, you have the advantage of getting things right from the start, as, as right as you can. I mean, no one can be perfect. For example, we are really doing our best to walk away from plastic. We still need it in the office a little bit for, for the jewelry. So if something is sterling silver, we need to kind of protect it so it doesn't oxidize. But we're now at a point where just through a simple design tweak to our, our pouch packaging, which I happen to have right here, there's a little loop now inside, inside the pouch where we can attach earrings onto instead of putting them in a little plastic bag on the inside, or we can hang a necklace from it. So, you know, entrepreneurs are there to solve problems, but so is design. And design can be beautiful and it should be beautiful. It should be, you know, it should be something that makes you want it. Um, it, it should be decorative, et cetera. But it's even better when it can also be 
you know, functional and solve a problem. And so that, that, you know, it took me, I don't know, 10 years to figure out how can we use less plastic? You know, and it was just a matter of putting the time onto it. Oh, we should put a loop in, in the pouch. It's so funny when you see like, yeah, when you find such a simple solution, well, what appears to be a simple solution. And it's interesting to bring that up. Just like a little sidebar as I'm reading this book and I should remember the name, I think it's called like simplicity and design. And there's this like brand I really like. And so I like the branding is just, it's so simple and clear. And the CEO recommended this book and, and that's what it is. It's the things that are so simple and they appear so simple, take the most work and the most effort. And you, it's like an iPhone, like it's so simple and clean, but Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we know an iPhone, I guess, but it's like these other smaller things. It's like, it takes a ton of work to get it down to its most simplest form and while being functional and looking beautiful. Um, but I, I had a quick comment that I just, the resolution, um, was it bracelet you said? Oh yeah. The ring. ring. Yes. Yes. Resolution bracelet. Yeah. Or Um, I love that because we do a weekly newsletter and I have a draft for Friday and I'm like, Hey, it's February. Do you, do you remember your new year's resolutions? Yeah. Cause I'm like, it's not as much about doing them. It's about remembering them. Yes. And I just looking back at my drum, like, Oh yeah, I forgot all this stuff I wanted to do. Um, so I'm so glad I'll have to, I, I'll to keep my eyes open. Is that still available on the website? Yes, I'll, have to, I'll have to go look for it. Um, and so something I wanted to ask you is, you know, you go to Laos, you see this problem, you, Think of an idea, like how does it actually happen? Like, how do you go from you guys have the talent and the the materials and the skill set to do this? I have a market. Like, how does that all start? Like, how do you connect the dots to like implement this? Yeah, I mean, going backwards, I'll try to give you the quick and dirty of it, but with with one little one little side story. Um, so I, I I leave Laos as as planned, and I this is back in 2009, and um, I am determined to to make a a bracelet remotely, right? And I am so fortunate. I have these amazing nonprofit partners, as I mentioned earlier, Swiss NGO called Helvetas, and they were, as I said, they were really forward thinking, and they. They did their job when it came to bringing hydropower to these four villages, but they really cared about what the community was going to do with, you know, those, those precious, that precious power and and light that it could extend their day by an hour. And sure, there would be, you know, the, the naughty Thai soap opera watched here and there, but what else could, what else could the community do with their time? And so, um, I was so fortunate that they really cared about about that. And so we worked together remotely. I sent bracelet samples over and they coordinated the first stages of sampling with the artisan community. And so it took about a year to make the first bracelet, um, just because if I'm totally honest, and I think this is a really important point to make, the artisans were really skeptical. You know, they said to the nonprofit partner, who's going to buy these bracelets? And I was like, I am. <laughs> but but what, what they really meant was, as it was translated to me, a lot of falang, which is a word for foreigner. Um, it was first used in relation to French, which um, 
held Laos as a protectorate. Um, but then it became any anyone from the outside that wasn't Lao. Um, many Falun come here with good intentions, but then things don't actually materialize. And so I understood that. And I flew back to Laos about a year later. And the week that I was leaving, I received my first set of, of bangles. And, you know, in a way, I wish we kind of had that really rough look that were the very first bangles still. I almost think I should ask them to degrade their skills and go back to that because now they're so perfect and pristine. But, um, and I was like, okay, this is great. We're on to something. And so, you know, I, I had already told them, you know, look, I'm going to do my best. I'm not going to make you any promises except one, which is that I'll buy the first 500 and it will still be worth your time, you know? But I don't want to oversell this to you because I just don't know how it's going to go. And then, you know, 500 turned into a thousand, which turned into thousands, et cetera. And then now we have a whole, whole range of jewelry. Um, but so, you know, that very starting point was about buy-in from the community itself. You have nothing if you don't have that trust and that sense that, that I had good intentions and that I was really going to try and that they were really going to try too. And stakeholder engagement. I can hear, I can hear Laurel thinking, engage all the stakeholders. <laughs> yes. yes. No. And, 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 but, and that's the key. It, it's not going to work if there's not that mutual, mutually beneficial balance. Right. And, and, and for, for the NGO that we were working with to launch this a few years later, they were like, thank you. Now we can go on to another village and put our time and resources into a community that needs us more. This is working. This is sustainable. And, you know, we're, we're ready to move on. And that was the point at which I was able to hire a local country manager who, you know, today coordinates products from multiple other sources, from our weaving partners to the silversmiths that we work with, the paper makers that we work with. So um, it was it was really an exciting thing to see that organic growth um, happen and in a sustainable way. You know, I did bootstrap entirely initially and pretty much even to this day, although I have some amazing board of advisors and um who, who have put some money into this to see it, to see it grow. But, um, you know, it, it, or, or sorry to interrupt you. So for that first order, the first, I think you said 500 bracelets, it was from you, like you self-funded that. Yes. 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 Wow. Yeah. So for the, I, I, we didn't receive any external like grants or investment until maybe like 2015. And even so the amounts of money were, were, very, very modest. So that was about six years, right? Because I think you said 2009 to so 2015 was... So yes, that's right. Wow. And originally it was a side project. You know, I was doing some other things. Um, but then there was a point at which we we started doing a little bit more retail events during the holidays and realizing like what a powerful item it is to gift. Um, we, we realized there's something to be said for, for seasonality and really putting a lot of effort into those you know, that those Q4 months. And so that really was a big factor in changing the dynamic of the business and realizing how we could, how we could grow it. I love that. You, you mentioned organic growth and how 
the nonprofit partner was able to grow as well and move on to a village in need, that is, in my opinion, a definite one of the many definitions of a regenerative business where every not only are you sustainable in your supply chain and long lasting and resilient to change, but you're building and adding value in every step of the way. Not your business isn't just scaling the positive impact that your nonprofit partners through these public-private partnerships, they too are expanding their capacity, their awareness, their involvement, their impact, and everyone that's involved in the Article 22 community, from the buying, the selling, the making, the partnering, are all expanding and all doing better. So it's a health ecosystem is Mm -hmm. what it is at the end of the day. I mean, and sustainability, right, is is something that is so simple when we were talking about, you know, simplicity of design. And, you know, I think here, here as in the the West and in places where we have a lot of modern advancement, we became out of touch with what exactly sustainability means. And to give an example as to how we work in Laos and what, working with these communities has taught me is that although people say undeveloped, they're actually underdeveloped in some ways, but they're more developed in others in the way they've retained certain local ways of life and systems that we're now realizing actually need to be rebuilt. So an example is um, the fact that the artisans that we work with, you know, are not commuting to sterile factories. So they're, they're home workers and they're working in their beautiful gardens and they're making the, the jewelry and the spoons. And at the same time, they're mothers and fathers and daughters and sisters and brothers. And they are within a network and a community that cares about each other and the childcare is sort of built into that process, but they're also farmers and in many cases subsistence farmers, which means they're, you know, taking what they farm to their table um, in a less, in an as glamorous way, except they don't see it as glamorous, but that's, that's a conversation for another day. Um, But they're these multidimensional people. They're not just defined as artisans or any one of those other things. And so like socially, there's that kind of understanding that's just so natural. Um, And then environmentally, so I'm mentioning, you know, culturally, they're doing something that they started doing since the 1970s, and it was self-determined. And so we've only just kind of capacity built on that socially they're they're living and working in a in a smooth and cohesive way now we're all learning how to work from home but they they're ahead of us they know how to do it you know they skipped the landline now they get to skip the commute uh they went straight with cell phones now they're like see we have a home office we've been doing this for a while we got you um and then economically like that that environment thanks to the internet is allowing them to reach larger markets and then environmentally as is the case with what we do with the artisans you know they're they're upcycling etc but there's this just very kind of natural way of living that is inherently sustainable um and obviously that is threatened the more 
external input there is, you know, more people have cars now, but that also allows them a lot more economic opportunity because they can get the products to the airplane. Um, so hopefully soon they'll have electric cars instead of gas fueled ones. But mm -hmm. the, the, the point is to, to go there and to use the term undeveloped is so wrong. <laughs> and I didn't necessarily know any of that before I went there, but seeing how they are with each other and seeing the way their community and family dynamic is, you just realize they're, they're ahead in some ways. Yes. These are multi-sensory human beings that, that you've experienced and you've seen how it can be done in a way that's joyous and harmonizing and, again, the transforming the negative to a positive, it truly is ex expanding their wellness um, in a sustainable way that can continue on and continue on. And I'm assuming that maybe the end goal of Article 22 is to not have a business anymore because all the, all the bombs will be gone. What's, what does your future look like? What do you want? Totally. I mean, that is a great problem to have as a business. Um, and... I say that because this is a problem that shouldn't have existed in the first place. Now, the Lao government believes that clearing Laos could be possible with the right amount of funding by 2030. They have to set an ambitious goal because it is so integrated with all of their other sustainable, sustainable development goals, number one being a reduction in poverty. So there are 17 sustainable development goals and different countries have, you know, a different weights on each of those goals. But Laos has this 18th goal that is specific only to Laos and that is lives free from UXO. UXO is unexplored. So they have to make this improvement because it's really the only way that they will really be able to achieve their other goals. And this is a huge issue for a company, excuse me, a country that, you know, almost 70% of the population rely on their land and there are still 80 million unexploded bombs. Those, those ideas are just incompatible. How do you reduce poverty when the land is, unusable or dangerous, you know? So I, I hope that we can continue to be a small part and growing part of this. You know, there's no doubt that, you know, when you really talk about it being a multi-stakeholder um, project, it is because for now, uh, governments and the U.S. does lead the way um, in terms of being, you know, the most supportive at this point of uh, clearance in Laos, land clearance in Laos. And I should point out that that's very much due to um, an organization called Legacies of War, who I think you may be speaking to soon. Um, and it's a Lao American organization that's that's founded by. Um, a Lao American woman and run by Lao American women um, who essentially work with the politicians to ensure that funding for clearance in Laos 
um, increases every year. And so that Laos can be free from UXO, lives can be free from UXO. Um, so it takes government effort and it takes effort from non-governmental organizations who are there administering um, or allocating the funds and, and doing risk education and doing um, the actual clearance. And then Article 22 is a great example of a private enterprise. It's it's about public-private partnership. We've been able to bring this story in partnership with the artisans and journalists like Claire Press and podcasters like you to a wider audience who wouldn't necessarily have known about this. I mean, as I said, fashion and sustainability, 2010, oil and water, no, no link. And I think it was three years ago, um, five years ago, we were in Italian Vogue. And three years ago, with the launch of our collection with Angela Linval, um, it's a collection of sacred geometries that are really all about like patterns in nature. Um, we were featured in Vogue. And that was just an amazing milestone because what I want with this work so much is to get out there to people who wouldn't necessarily know about it, not because of ignorance, but just simply because it wasn't in our history books and it might not be the first thing on their radar. And art is meant to be um, that sort of thing that can start conversations and design can do the same thing. And that's that's really what I want to continue to pursue. I want to be able to have hard conversations through a very unlikely object. and. That's actually one of the reasons why, you know, we started working with a bunch of artists and activists almost two years ago now. And we worked with Miss Black America. Her name is Ryan Richardson. And her her work is really around advocacy within the Black community as a woman. And her message is take up space being your whole self. And that's a message that that that's right for anybody. Um, and it's a great kind of reminder on a day-to-day and motivator. And then we work with um, a former child soldier from South Sudan named Emmanuel Jal. And he survived the most trying of, of life challenges. And um, you can learn more on our website. And his message is just very simple. It's be the love. And so in working with all of these different people, I love being able to use our jewelry, which is, you know, a piece of history from one of the most contentious periods in, in American history and have it say something now in a really relevant way through the words written by these different partners that we have. And, you know, they're, they're the ones doing the work. So there's no one better to be speaking those words and, and and using those words to motivate and encourage us to envision the possibility that they envision for the future. That's, it's another story that's been added on. Like I, yeah. I, Oh, I'm sorry. My internet's cutting out. Let me catch back up. No. Um, Emmanuel Jaw, I, I have his app on my phone. My life is art. He he's an inspiration. I love it. another point of connection, and you know I'm I had a connection with Rebecca Rush, who is another collaborator. Tell us a little bit um, about her and the line associated with her and her her message. I know we can find it on your website at article22.com, but how did you get connected to Rebecca Rush? 
So this is just an incredible story. So, you know, history obviously is composed not just of whatever is in our curriculum and is the kind of narrative of the government, right? There are so many individual stories that that really make it what it is. And Rebecca's story is incredible. And even how we came together is, is I can mention for, for the entrepreneurs that'll appreciate this, but um, her story is that she is a world champion athlete, specifically around mountain biking. And she is sponsored by Red Bull. And this is like maybe five or six years ago. Red Bull makes their first documentary ever about her story, which starts with a 1200 mile ride down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, along with a fellow woman Vietnamese mountain biker. And she is in search, Rebecca, of the remains of her father's crash site. And he was a pilot, Captain Rush, during the Vietnam War and was responsible for dropping many bombs on the country. And he was missing in action and um, was killed in action. And this was a journey for her that was a physical feat, um, but quite clearly also an emotional feat. And when she got down to the Ho Chi Minh Trail, all along the way, she met communities that were affected by unexploded ordnance. And she hadn't, like me and many others, realized that Laos is considered the most heavily bombed country in history per capita, and that there's all of this unexploded ordnance. So she started the Be Good Foundation, um, which does bike tours in non-COVID times um, and raises funds for Minds Advisory Group, our partner. And that happened at around the same time we started working together to create the Be Good bracelet. And why Be Good? That is because um, the last words that her father wrote in his last letter home were Be Good, Steve. And that is her mission to practice herself and to spread around the, around the world. And those words have very, very powerful meaning in general, but to realize that, you know, this man was conflicted about the war that he was fighting and the bombs that he was dropping and that those words helped get him through his experience. It just makes you realize how multi-sided, um, history is and how really the way to heal is is to to tell stories. And for Rebecca, the documentary that Red Bull made is called Blood Road. And it's it's very much um, a, a journey of of discovery and and of healing. And so we went back together a few years, maybe two years after they made the documentary. And um, we made a two-minute piece called The Bomb's Journey. And it it was me having the opportunity to introduce Rebecca to the village where we work, where her be good jewelry is created. And so now when she goes back, she does bike rides and she'll bring people to the village. Um, and it's just an amazing, it's an amazing story because 
you know, she's, she's an athlete who would have thought that this athlete would be making jewelry. Um, Who would have thought article 22 would have this incredible opportunity, but it's an angle on the story that um, is, is our story of article 22 would be incomplete with, without her, as it would be incomplete without our partner minds advisory group, as it would be incomplete without the Lao American funded uh, run nonprofit legacies of war. so important whether they're product partnerships uh, for Article 22 or whether they're like stakeholder partnerships because not any one organization or person is going to solve the problem. It really does take a concerted effort. Yes. I think, oh, so much yes. So much yes. Thank you for sharing all these stories. I encourage our listeners to um, explore the article22.com website and the stories for each one of the pieces of jewelry, each with their own message that you can make your own as well. And you'll get lost. You'll go to the Be Good Foundation. You'll go to Mag. You'll go to Legacies of War. And like your world, your world will shift and change. Thank you for being part of the shift, the change and the transformation, Liz. With that, we'd love to have your three point landing or your three key takeaways you want us all to walk away with? Sure. Um, So I'll start with what I just really talked about, which is collaboration. That's number one. Um, Number two is to really work with the people who have the biggest problem to really understand the needs and the perceptions because perceptions in a working environment matter as much as the actual needs um, and then the third thing is working within limitations um, can yield a lot more creativity. And that's a you know physical example of that is this community transforming the bomb shrapnel and other scrap into soup spoons. Um, but it it also is an opportunity to think how can I live more simply, sustainably, and in a more minimalist way. Um, and that, that to me is my personal goal and challenge right now. I'm trying to figure out, uh, that balance and, and not seeing, um, limitations of what you have as a lack. It's actually an opportunity to reflect and realize like you have an abundance of other things. And so how can you really like use them to, to, to grow toward whatever goal you have. Thank you so much. That's awesome. We appreciate your time and are huge fans and support everything that you're working on. And you've just enlightened us so much. And, uh, thank you. Thank you. This was so fun. I love talking about me. I hope you'll have to come back. We'll do more. Yeah, I know. We need to get Rebecca on Legacies of War. We can do a follow-up. Sounds good. Love it. We're on. (laughs) (laughs) Appreciate your time. Yes. You too. Send it, Jessa. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Orion Podcast with Article 22. For 10% off qualifying purchases, visit www.article22.com and use promo code ORION10. That's O-R-I-O-N-1-0. Enjoy.